0: This morning, if you would turn with me to Malachi 1, the last book in the Old Testament. Um, we're going to be looking at a passage this morning, the latter half of Malachi 1, the beginning of Malachi 2, that contains one of my favorite uh, one of my favorite verses. Um, actually, I read this several years ago. Uh, <clears throat> initially, when I was reading a biography on Jonathan Edwards, and I was reading about a uh, man that he buried. And this was the epitaph on his gravestone, and I thought, not the entire passage, but one of the verses we'll be looking at, and I thought, this is something I would love to have said about me at the end of my life, and ever since then, it's been one of those verses uh, that I have loved. And uh, lest you think, man, this guy's going to the minor prophets uh, and thinks something great of me, I'm going to the easiest of the minor prophets. So uh, we'll be looking at Malachi 1 and and Malachi 2 here, and uh, there's a mix in this passage of uh, encouragement and of conviction. Uh, You're going to hear most of the passage we read, it's convicting, it's telling us about things that the Israelites are doing wrong, but thrown in the middle there is is an encouragement and I want you to to watch that as we look this morning because it's something that um, the Lord always does. When he convicts us, he always holds out that hope of the gospel. And so please, as we begin reading in verse 6 of Malachi 1, read along with me. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? And its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring back what has been taken by violence, or is lame, or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand? says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat, who has a male in his flock, and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. true instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness. And he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people. Inasmuch as you do not keep my ways but show partiality in your instruction. This is the word of the Lord. We're looking at a passage today that is entirely a conversation between God and His people. Uh, There are passages in the Bible that have other purposes. There are some that are particularly evangelistic or some that have any number of other purposes. Purposes, but this is a passage where God is specifically talking to two groups. First of all, His people in general, and then more specifically to His priests. And uh, and it's a pointed book dealing specifically with how the people of God live. I remember uh, Darren mentioned at the beginning that I was in the Navy for seven years. On my second ship, I was the navigator. And every time we would come in or out of port or do anything that got us near to land or anything difficult, I would have to give a navigation brief in two and a half years, I probably gave upwards of 300 navigation briefs, and you would have the entire crew together, about 360 people on the destroyer I was on for these navigation briefs, and you would be basically walking them through the entire process of what we would be doing, how we would be avoiding land, the uh, visual... Uh, visuals we would be using to know exactly where we were going and things like this. But the amazing thing is, even though I had about 350, 360 people there, every time I did one of these briefs, the only person I was interested in was the captain right in front of me. I mean, I may have been speaking to 350, 360 people, but the captain was really the only one I was talking to. He was the only one who uh, mattered. And and this is, this is similar. Certainly, this is in the Bible. It's something that anybody who Picks up a Bible can read, but it's very pointed address to God, or from God to His people and to His priests, and I think that uh, it tells us that we're supposed to be passionate about something, and I think that that is something that every people in every age can remember and or can understand, and I think especially God's people. You know, I was thinking this morning about our connection to God's people in the past, and it was amazing, even as we sang the hymns this morning. We sang a hymn that was written by uh, St. Francis of Assisi in 1225, almost 900 years ago. And we're going to sing a hymn afterwards that was a poem written in the 8th century. So it's almost 1,100 years old. And so we're singing hymns to God with believers who have been singing them for 900, 1,100, 2,000 years even as we as we sing some of these hymns. And there's a connection between God's people in all times. We're all saved by having a faith in Jesus Christ and His atoning work. We all look to the same God. And so these, these convictions, these, these attacks on the way that God's people are living from the prophet Malachi are just as applicable to us today as they were to Israel in this time. And so I want to look... At several things. The first I want to look at, though, is just that there, Malachi is calling us to a passion. And in our day and age, when we're passionate, usually uh, we're passionate about something that's not the Bible. Uh, let's be honest. Usually it's technology, or, you know, as I drove down from Jackson this morning and I got inside of the beach, I, I was in the Navy for seven years. I love the ocean, I love the smell, I love the look of it. And we have a lot of people in our culture who are passionate about the beach. Um, We have a lot of people in our culture who are passionate about uh, all kinds of material things. As Darren mentioned, I'm getting ready to go and plant a church in England. I was told by somebody who lives in England uh, that there are three things that uh, people in England feel particularly close to. They feel particularly close to um, their bartender. They feel particularly close to uh, the local pastor, whether they're churchgoers or not. They just feel like they can open up to him. Uh, in a unique way, and they feel particularly close to their dogs. And so they may tell their dogs things that they wouldn't even tell their spouses. Um, I thought, well, that's that's telling. Maybe I need to become a dog person when I move to England. Um, but I think it gives us a picture of a passion or a zeal for things that are not what Malachi is calling us to be passionate and zealous for. Uh, there is a person that this passage, especially when you read uh, those verses, I hope you picked them out, uh, Malachi 2, 4 through 7 there, that are really an encouragement. There's a person in Numbers named Phineas who has always been one of my favorite Bible characters. I tried to convince my wife we should name our son Phineas. She, she didn't like that. Um, Phineas is, is a character who uh, <coughs> the Bible tells us God made an everlasting covenant of the priesthood with Phineas because Phineas was zealous, for God's name like God is zealous for his name. And it tells us that Phineas made atonement for his people before God. Well, when I hear those things, one, this passage here in in Malachi 2 reminds me of him. Uh, Two, it reminds me a lot of Christ. But it talks about somebody who's not dispassionate like is quote-unquote cool in our society so much. Probably most of the people you knew in school or or even now that you think of as uh, up-and-comers or maybe... Uh, people who are kind of cool are usually dispassionate. It's their fact that they're dispassionate about things that makes them people, other people want to be around. But this actually calls us to a passion. And so as we look at the, what Malachi is calling us to be passionate for, I want us to see three things. First of all, I want us to see the conviction that he's bringing us to. And that is God's charge against his people and his priesthood. Uh, the second thing I want to see is gar- God's charge for... His elect, not, not a conviction this point, but what He's calling them to, because every time He convicts you in an area of sin, there's, a, there's an equal and opposite call that He's making on your life. And the third thing I want to see is the fulfillment of that covenant with Levi that Malachi 2 talks to us about, because that is really the hope in our lives as we're being called to live with a passion for God. First of all, I want to look at God's charge against His priesthood. He tells them, well, He tells them a number of things. He begins by telling them they've polluted the food upon the altar. He tells them they're offering blind and lame animals. And actually, later on, He tells them not only are they offering blind and lame animals, they're offering animals they took by violence. And the amazing thing about this is they're not offering blind and lame animals because they don't have anything else. This isn't like uh, the woman that Jesus praised who was basically giving everything she had. And even though it was a pittance that was everything she had and she was showing her love for God. It, it tells us, actually, in verse 14, I believe, of chapter 1, Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord that which is blemished. So this is a picture of a people who actually have what they're supposed to give. They have the good animal. They were supposed to give the firstborn, the male, firstborn male of their flock, who was without blemish, who was perfect, and this was supposed to be their sacrifice to God. And these people apparently had that. They had what they were supposed to give, and not only did they have it, but they knew that was what they were supposed to give. And in addition to that, they vowed that that was what they were going to give. So they had what they were supposed to give, they knew it was what they were supposed to give, and they made a vow to God that they were going to give it. And yet when it came time, they loved what they had more than they loved God. And so they kept that back, And they gave animals that they took by violence. Who knows whether that's some sort of something they took in some tribal warfare or whether that's something they stole. But they took animals they took by violence. They gave blind animals and they gave sick animals and lame animals. And so uh, clearly in the way that they are worshiping God, they are showing a passion for something else before their passion for God. And, and we see this not just here in the, in the Bible. It's not something that's new to us. We see it in Cain in Genesis 4. You know, we don't know exactly what was wrong about the, uh, the, the uh, offering that he brought to God, but it was most likely something that was an issue of heart, as the Bible tells us later, just like these people were struggling with. He brought an offering that was not pleasing to God. Uh, Nadab and Abihu, maybe those are names you're not familiar with as much, but Nadab and Abihu were the sons of Aaron the priest. And God in Leviticus, in Leviticus, uh, first eight or nine chapters of Le- Leviticus gives a very clear picture of how you are to worship God in the tabernacle. He tells them exactly what they're to do, step by step, how they're to make, uh, you know, the fire that they're supposed to use for the offering, how they're to offer the animals, all of these other things. And right after he tells them how they're to do it, you get to Leviticus 10, and Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, decide, okay... Um, I don't know why, but we're going to offer fire different than the fire that he just told us to bring. The Bible tells us it's strange fire. Some people say maybe that's, they were drunk when they did it. Maybe they just didn't follow the rules. We don't really know, but again, it was a heart issue. They had just been told how to worship God, and they decided it was more important to do it the way that they wanted to do it. And so they brought this fire, and God struck them down dead immediately. Uh, we have another picture, Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. Ananias and Sapphira, we know, they promised that they were going to bring God... An offering. They said, we're going to bring him this, um, we're going to sell our property and we're going to bring this money to help out those who are poor and needy in the church. And they did this because they wanted to look good, but then when they brought it, uh, they only gave a portion of it. They wanted to look like they were giving it all. They wanted to look good, but they were worshiping themselves ultimately before they were worshiping God. And again, God struck them down. So clearly Malachi is not the only one who is frustrated with the people of God not worshiping God correctly. The prophet Malachi, I think we can actually say, was not indignant purely because the people neglected to sacrifice the wrong thing. He was was indignant because the neglect of the people reflected an indifference towards God. You know, if this had been the best they had, and they brought the best they had, even though it was lame and... Uh, blind and they brought the best they had to give to God there certainly wouldn't have been the same indignance on the part of Malachi the, the indignance was because the way that they were offering showed that they did not care about God and then you know just at the very beginning of this passage here in one six, God tells us you have a people here who they call God father and yet they give him no honor uh, you know we think of, of calling God Father in the, in the way that we do in the Lord's Prayer and other places in the New Testament. And we realize that, that actually we are called in the New Testament to, to call God Father because there is a love and a relationship and a compassion there that the Old Testament doesn't talk about very often. In fact, the Old Testament doesn't call God Father very much. And when it does, it's usually talking more about the fact that he deserves to be honored than it is about the fact that He is a compassionate and gentle. and That's a side of, of God that was revealed to us uh, by Christ in a way that, that was not as clear in the Old Testament. But, but here, God says, You call me Father, but you don't give me any honor. You call me Master, but you don't fear me. And what He's saying in this is, You know the truth, even as we already saw with the, with the offerings. You know the truth. You know who I am. You actually say the right things. You're orthodox in your theology, maybe. But when it comes to practice, you're not so orthodox. Or you don't show orthopraxy, as they call it, when you, when you do things right. Your practice doesn't match your words. You know who I am. You call me by the right name. You look good on the outside, but your practice isn't the same. And I think so we see a people here who, uh, who do a couple, a couple things. First, uh, they live in a way that doesn't honor God. Two, they try to cover it up with an outside that looks good. I think uh, as we get to this next section in a few minutes, I think you're going to realize that that's probably something you can identify with. Um, it's certainly something I can identify with regularly. The, the second thing, though, he does not in, in Malachi 2 is he doesn't just indict the people, but he indicts the priests. It's the priest's job to actually, when he sees the people doing this, call them back. But just like the people are not obeying God, the priests are actually aiding and abetting the people in not worshiping God. They are actually helping them offer these bad sacrifices rather than calling them to correct way uh, to live. He's aiding them and encouraging them in sin rather than aiding them and encouraging them in worship of God, which is exactly the priest's, uh, the priest's role. And I think also that we need to remember that we are called to be a royal priesthood. You know, priests are not something we have in our daily life every day, but but this is a call that is made on us. And if you look, you don't need to turn there now, but if you were to read this afternoon 1 Peter 2, where we're called to be a royal priesthood, there's two elements to that royal priesthood. The first is that we're supposed to offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. That's the first element of being a royal priesthood. Uh, reminds you of maybe Romans 12, the beginning of Romans 12 a little bit or something like that, but... We're to offer spiritual sacrifices to God. Well, isn't that amazing? Isn't that what the people were doing poorly in the Old Testament? They were offering sacrifices poorly. The second thing that we're called to do is we're called to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. We're supposed to worship Him. We're supposed to serve Him and we're supposed to worship Him as a priesthood. They failed to love or to teach God's Word. They failed to love or to teach His glory. But there was one who did not fail to do either of those that we see in in Malachi 2. And we'll be looking to him later. It wasn't Phineas. It wasn't this one who made atonement for God's people. The second thing we see in this passage is that actually this charge against God's elect is a call to us and to them as God's people for how we should live. Malachi has several areas where he indicts God's people, but there's really three major ones in the book of Malachi he indicts God's people in. Two of them we see in this passage I read, and the third one we don't. The first is he, he very clearly challenges them in saying <clears throat> that they're, they're failing in the way that they give to God. They're giving. The second one is that they're failing in their worship. And the third one is they're failing in their view of marriage. And divorce, and that's the one that is not as clear in the very passage we read today. But if you read through the four chapters of Malachi very briefly this afternoon, you would see that that is another one. In fact, when Jesus says God hates divorce, he's quoting Malachi. That's something that Malachi said first. And so as we look at these three things that Malachi challenges the people in, as they're not giving, they're not worshiping, and they're not honoring marriage the way that God has called them to, I think that we see that these are actually things that we probably struggle with as well. I think we see that we uh, struggle with where our hope of salvation is placed, sometimes just like the congregation of Israel in Malachi's day did. Um, They were placing their hope in their material blessings, the blessings God had given them, and the possessions in their own happiness. Um, And I think sometimes we do this. I can't even imagine the things that we pursue incorrectly. Uh, Just to start off, um, you know, I think about this and I think about what we're, what does our Declaration of Independence give us freedom to pursue? It gives us freedom to pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And actually, I know that a lot of the people who wrote that, who helped sign that, actually meant a very biblical thing by that when they wrote that. Um, But, you know, we look around at just Americans, just our culture, and we see that often pursuing life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness is much more about pursuing what we want than it is being given liberty to pursue God in the way that uh, we are called to. Um, Is that what we're seeking first and foremost, or are we seeking Christ as our greatest treasure? Are we that person that the parable tells about who found a treasure in in a field and it was so valuable to him that he went out and sold everything he had? He sold his house, he sold his clothes, he sold any animals he had, any slaves he had, everything he had, and went and purchased that field because that treasure was so important to him? Are we willing to give up everything for the sake of Christ? When we are giving to God, how do we give? I know when my wife and I come to, to tithe, this is something I, I will probably it'll always probably be battle. You're giving what you have worked hard to earn. It's something I think should be a battle. In fact, Malachi wouldn't have to bring it up first and foremost. It wouldn't have to be something Paul brought up time and time again if this was not an area of struggle. Do we give to God the stuff that we don't need? Do we give him the things that we can get on without? Uh, Those months when your finances are particularly tight, when you're not certain that you're going to be able to pay your bills at the end of the month. And I just finished three years of full-time school, so I understand being in that position where... You don't always know if you're going to have enough money at the end of the month. Do we give God the first and best of what we have? Or do we wait until we get to the end of the month and see, am I going to have enough to give God some money at the end of the month? You know, is that how we live? Or, or is that even how we think? When we do give on those months, because I know there were months when I didn't think I was going to have mo- enough money and I gave a tithe at the beginning of the month anyway. But I'll tell you, when I gave that tithe, I certainly didn't give like Paul said, giving cheerfully as before the Lord. I was giving. I was writing that check, really nervous. I was very anxious. Am I going to have enough money to pay my bills this month? You know, there there was a lot of anxiety there. That's not how we're called to give to God. Uh, Again, this is this is the same struggle the people in Malachi's day were having with their giving to the Lord. They were holding back what they had and giving the Lord the leftover. When it comes to worship. You know, God has given us, He has blessed us with a day that we can set aside to use to honor Him, to bless Him, to worship Him. And um, I know Sundays, a lot of people have big projects coming up. Monday morning, for some reason, is a big day for big meetings, for big projects being due, for all kinds of things. When you're in seminary, no less, there's a lot of papers due on Monday morning. I never understood if we're trying to honor the Sabbath. That doesn't seem like the, the... the easiest way to do it. But but you know, when you have those things due on Monday, it, it is a battle to worship God, to use the day that He has given us to worship Him in the way that He wants us to. We have to battle to keep that day His, to worship Him in a way that honors Him, to actually use that to love Him, rather than just to use it as a way in which Um You know, we we set it aside and you know think about what we're actually Doing the next day. If you don't work on Sunday, but you think about your work the entire day, you've really missed the entire point of that day. I think in our in our in our worship, another way that we in our worship don't passionately seek to 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 love God is the way that that we worship Him in our song. I know I can think of a couple ways that we do this. Um, When we come together as a congregation, sometimes when we're looking for churches is the first way. We look for the church that makes us feel, uh, feel good, instead of looking for the church where we can join together with God's people and worship, them, regardless of whether it's our very favorite, we kind of pick and choose that which we love the most. I think the other thing we do is, uh, I know I have, over the last several years, sung hymns that either, one, I didn't know very well, or two, I thought they were really dirge-like. Let's be honest. Every once in a while, a, a hymn is in the the singing that you're doing and you, you get to it and you think this sounds more like a funeral dirge than a, a worship song. And and it, it is sometimes hard to worship God when you have a song like that before you. But we are here to worship God's people together. And we're, we're looking to give God our best in worship. We're looking to worship Him passionately. And I think the third thing he says is that we just need to be reminded, especially in, in the culture we live in, we need to be reminded that marriage is something very important. Uh, Not just your own marriage. Your own marriage is very important, but if you're not married today, or if you've been married a long time, and maybe you're giving advice to other people who are newly married, or you're thinking about marriage, or you're just around people who are married, which I think probably brings all of us in. um, Marriage is something valuable. Marriage is the greatest picture God gives us of the way that He has loved us. It is the clearest picture in our life, that He gives us of the way He has loved us. And so when we honor others' marriages, when we honor our own marriage, uh, when we um, uh, respect the marriages around us, when we uh, recognize that so much of what we hear on television, on the radio, and everywhere around us doesn't fit with a biblical view of marriage, what we're doing is honoring the way that Christ has loved us because that's what it is a picture of. But looking at all these things that we're called to, looking at all these areas, hopefully... You've seen, as, as I see when I read this, that we fail in many of the same ways that the people in Malachi's day failed. We're given a picture of hope. And God rarely shows us our sin, calls us to repentance. In fact, I don't know of an example. I'm not just going to say rarely. God does not show us our sin and call us to repentance without giving us a picture of hope. And the picture of hope He gives us, I think, is in the second half of 2.4 through uh, the end of verse 7. We see a picture of a priest as God has called him to be. It says that his beginning and end is in the Lord. He has a covenant with God. The covenant is one of life and peace, and God gave them to him. The covenant is one of fear, and he feared God. He stood in awe of God's name. His teaching and instruction was completely and truly faithful to the Word of the Lord. His words were pure, which when I read that, I immediately think of Philippians 4, where uh, Paul says, whatever is just, whatever is true, whatever is right, whatever is pure, these are the things that we as Christians are supposed to be thinking on. Uh, His life was peaceful and upright. He turned many away from iniquity. Again, this reminds me of of Psalm 51, the psalm where David is begging repentance of God for his his sin with Bathsheba and his sin with... uh, Murder and everything else that he was doing and he's begging God for repentance and he shows in, in Psalm 51:13 a picture of what repentance, what true repentance will do in his life and he says, "I will teach many your ways and I will teach, turn many from iniquity." It's almost the exact same phrasing here as in this passage. This, this priest guarded knowledge. people sought instruction from him. He was a messenger of the Lord of, of the Lord of hosts. When we begin to look for this priest that the prophet is describing here, Malachi is describing, we look to Levi, and and actually, amazingly, even though it's talking about the the covenant with Levi, uh, Levi is not the best picture of this priest. Um, You might look to Moses. You know, the New Testament said that there was not a greater prophet until the day of Christ than Moses. Uh, You know, we look to Moses. Moses is not this priest, though. We might look to Aaron, Moses' brother, who was... Kind of the first true great priest, or or his grandson Phineas that I talked about, you know, who who it says in the Bible, Phineas had a zeal for God's name like God's zeal for His name, and it says that he made atonement for His people. That sounds like a pretty amazing priest, but that's not the one that it gives us the clearer picture of this. Uh, we might look to Elijah, the prophet, or Eli the priest who uh, told. Hannah, she could expect a son, and then Samuel came along, and he trained Samuel, the last great judge. We might even look to David, who in Psalm 51 does demonstrate this true repentance, and he does turn many from iniquity. But, you know, like the, the, hymn, the, hymn, the hymn this tells us, we're not to look to David, we're not to look to Phineas, we're not to look to Elijah or Eli or Levi or Moses or any of these others, we're to look to great David's greater son. And great David's greater son is a far greater priest than any other one found in the Scriptures. Uh, Christ is the priest who does all of these things we've read about. He is, he is not a priest who aids and encourages us in our sin when we see it. We don't look to his life and say, see, he did it too. He aids and encourages us in our, in our holiness. He draws us closer to him. It tells us in the Bible that Christ is the great high priest of God's elect, that he is making Atonement for his people before the throne of the Father, even now. He's a perfect sacrifice. You know, we talked about the sacrifices who are lame or blind or or whatever. He is a perfect, holy, absolutely without blemish sacrifice. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation, the Holy One of Israel. And he's the priest that we're supposed to look to for true instruction, for life and, priest, uh, life and peace, as Malachi 2.7 tells us a priest should draw people to. And he's a priest who, like I said, he brings us before the Father. When we look at these things, I hope that there is not ever a time in your life, as long as you were on earth, that you were able to look at these indictments Malachi makes of God's people and say, I don't have any struggle there anymore. I wish there was, but... I know for a fact that if you're able to look at these areas and say, I don't have trouble there anymore, then you're not really being entirely honest with yourself. Uh, The giving, the worship, uh, the love of God's holiness, all of these things are things that we're always going to struggle with. And as much as God calls us to them, and as much as He indicts us for those areas in our lives where we don't give to Him the way we should, and we don't worship Him the way that we should, we're always going to be like that. But when God looks at those of us who believe in Him... He doesn't see those things. And that's because what he sees in place of that is Christ. He sees this great high priest. He sees this great, this holy, this pure sacrifice laid before him. And so even as we look at this passage and we see Malachi 2, 4 through 7, we're reminded that we actually have a hope even when we see this sin in ourselves. We have somebody that we can call on. We have somebody who has already lived this life that we are called to perfectly for us. And even now as He is before the, the throne of God the Father, He draws us along using His Spirit in our lives to make us more and more like Him. So that day by day, week by week, year by year, we can become more and more like the people that He's calling us to be. And He's the one of whom we are told to have the same mind in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. He's, he's the one who transforms us. So even as we look at this passage this morning, and, and most of the passage is a passage that really... It's kind of convicting. It doesn't sound too uplifting. It's not terribly encouraging. And then we come to these verses in the middle that are very different. Uh, we need to be reminded that uh, Christ has made atonement for us. If you're here today and you haven't already believed in him, then Christ has made atonement for you if you trust in his name. And you are called to do that. And you have no struggle because when you come before the throne of God, you will already have a perfect life lived on your behalf. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank You for this day. I thank You for giving us this day to worship You, for giving us Your Son, who is the perfect picture of Your love for us, so that we can call You Father, not just as someone we honor, but as somebody that we love, that we can call Abba Father, that we can look to with hope. Lord, I pray that You would help us to love You more, to love Your perfection and Your glory more. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to realize our sins so that we would turn and love Christ even more than we already love him, that we would look to him as our only hope. I pray that you would bless the rest of our day as we have an opportunity to honor you with our time, with our families, with our meals, with everything else, Lord, that you would help us to use this day as you have ordained it. In Jesus' name, amen.